This is a HeadGum Podcast. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, halflings. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. We are releasing the first episode as the teaser for a new series that we are going to be releasing starting next year on the main feed. Uh, this is a new series that we are producing with Joan Miller, future Dr. Joan Miller, as well as Navar Jackson uh, and a number of other guests. Uh, it takes a little bit more of an academic or intellectual look at a lot of the same topics that we cover on the show normally. Uh, this first series of episodes that we will be doing will be focusing on empathy and will be drawing heavily from future Dr. Joan Miller's uh dissertation that she has written uh it is super exciting uh we have recorded almost the entire series at this point and uh some of these guests are incredible you are not going to want to miss what is coming up next year uh but let us know what you think of this inaugural episode of halfling university good morning halflings Welcome to your first day of class here at Halfling U, a historically black halfling university. While we have a storied history with the black halfling community, we welcome aspiring social justice preachers of all kinds and identities at HU. I am your headmistress and professor of cultural studies, the future Dr. Jones. This semester, we will be studying empathic communication, popular culture, and the civic imagination. If there are some words you're not sure of there, don't worry, I'll explain everything. And each episode will cover a topic that asks how popular culture stories can make us more empathic people and facilitate a more peaceful society. In today's session, like any good class, we'll go over the syllabus and describe what you can expect. Then we'll introduce the research problem and get some background about why empathic communication is important to both individuals and society as a whole. Joining me today as faithful teaching assistants are... Yo, 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 it's me. I'm captain of the football team. I started taking this class for just school credit, but now I, I kind of got into it, and I'm really interested in all this empathy stuff. It's me, Jeremy Cobb. I don't know why I sound like this right now, but this is me now. This is me now. <laughs> uh, uh, hi, um, I am the head of the Gifted program. This is... Uh, Navar Jackson, I am the creator and host of the Secret Nerd Podcast, and I love uh, history, math, science, everything STEM, engineering, going into space. Listen, I'm here to learn, and I want to learn with you. The only STEM I ever saw was on a plant. The only STEM I ever saw was on a brain. <laughs> All right. So I am going to start with a little personal story in academia we would refer to this as autoethnography um and then i will talk about the speech that i had these two read in preparation for this mm -hmm. so the title is my president was mixed 
I was on a flight back home from Hawaii, returning a month early from a doomed internship featuring some of the most exciting and harrowing moments of my then 19 years. A month into the trip, and I'd been flat broke and homesick, thinking I'd have paying work on the island, only for it to vanish, leaving me in beautiful but desperate straits. So I was on the plane home to Michigan, eager to see my mother and to sleep in my own bed rather than a mattress in a one-room cabana. The flight from Hilo, Hawaii to Lansing, Michigan is a marathon and a half, so like any good passenger, I bought a magazine. This particular issue featured Barack Obama's big ears, goofy smile, and warm brown skin. Skin that, in color, was impossibly close to my own. Further, the bold title, Black and White, was obviously calling me out directly. I am the firstborn kid of a determined and industrious Nigerian immigrant daughter of a federal permanent secretary, and a Detroit Irish Catholic bluish white collar son of a World War II vet. On my mother's side, I am first generation American, and on my father's side, I'm a daughter of the American Revolution. Growing up half black and half white was awkward at times, but mostly my family avoided talking about it at all. At most, an aunt would make a remark about how tanned I was compared to her. At the time, I found it cute or funny. In retrospect, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Other times, I argued with my mother about what to put down on, for on forms. Sometimes the only option that I felt accurately reflected my identity was other. I had no frame of reference for my race. I remember looking up the census data on mixed people when I was in high school, circa the early aughts, and being both shocked and validated to find that the national population was less than half of 1%. I knew there were barely any mixed people around me, and that was because there just weren't that many of us. I had one friend in high school who was mixed. We got along, but we never got close enough to really talk about our experiences with race. I was always drawn to other mixed people, but too timid to broach the subject. Even today, a certain communal joy fills me when I see young mixed race couples and children. To borrow a line from Hamilton, here's a toast to the four of us. Tomorrow there'll be more of us. It's heartening to me to know that these children won't feel as lonely and confused as I did. All of this was upended thanks to Barack Obama. Before him, I had Halle Berry. That was the only famous person I'd known of that was half black and half white in this nation of bold lines and stark divisions. I don't remember all the details of the article I read on the plane, but I know I was hooked on his history and babbled all about him on the drive home with my mother. She, on the other hand, was dead set on Hillary Clinton. While I wasn't opposed to Clinton, I was unhappy with her vote in favor of the Iraq war, which she later publicly apologized for. This was the first time my mom and I actually diverged in politics. She being the daughter of a civil servant, I had learned most of my political engagement from her, but I'd always been a critical thinker, unwary of vocalizing a difference in opinion. If you ever have the pleasure to meet my mother, ask her about the car commercial. In any case, I was absolutely convinced that Obama would go all the way. When he won the primary, I got to point a wry smile in my mother's direction, and I earned some status among her and her friends for my savviness. By the time the general election was in full swing, my mother and I, our immediate family and friends, were all on board. I was a 21-year-old senior in college, but because I had the audacity to be born in a year ending in seven, this would be my first presidential election. I got up early, dressed up in a short-sleeved pink striped button-down, and left my dorm to head to the pickup site. A local org was working with the English department to drive students to the polls and back, so I caught a van ride with a classmate. I took pictures on my brand new iPhone 3G, bubbling with excitement, joy, and a little trepidation. It was my first major voting experience, and I was participating in an undisputed historical moment, which a good 12 years before 2020 was still a very attractive prospect. Despite the time of year, the weather was beautiful, more like late summer than early autumn. 
My classmates had used sidewalk chalk to decorate the quad with messages of hope, change, and support for Obama. My small liberal arts school was aptly categorized as one of the nation's top Peace Corps recruitment institutions, a perennial winner of Recycle Mania, and one of the first colleges to have a LEED certified campus building. Most of us were firmly left of center. Regardless of affiliation, though, we were all politically active and civically minded, almost as a prerequisite for matriculation. The Kalamazoo College ethos arose from a desire to groom global citizens and to do more and for. Service learning, externships and internships, civic engagement, extracurriculars, and the school holiday known as Day of Gracious Living all encouraged us to see ourselves as political actors with a responsibility to our communities. That evening, hundreds of us were gathered in conference rooms and TV lounges across campus, glued to the screens as the results were counted. I wrote about it after the fact on January 21st, after the inauguration. Tuesday, November 4th, 2008, Kalamazoo, Michigan. It was my senior year of college. I woke up in the late morning, early afternoon. I didn't have class on Tuesdays. I had made sure there was nothing to do that day so that I wouldn't have a problem getting to the polls. The day was gorgeous. We had a sudden warm front and it felt like summer outside. I remember thinking it was mother nature's way of making it easy for everyone to vote. At eight, I was in the banquet room of the Hicks Center watching the results roll in on CNN. At about 10, we decided we wanted to watch the John Stewart and Stephen Colbert version of the real results, so we went upstairs to the game room to watch Indecision 08 in there. We heard screaming downstairs and people were running upstairs. They burst in yelling, he won, he won! We still hadn't heard because Stewart's and Colbert's votes were still coming in. I felt paralyzed for a moment, not wanting to celebrate before I had seen it with my own eyes. Someone flipped to CNN and there was a caption across the bottom of the screen that said, paraphrased, Barack Obama is president of the United States. We went crazy. So did the rest of campus. We ran out of the game room, down the stairs and outside. I had sworn that I would streak if Obama won. So a bunch of us ran to the top of the hill, whipped off our clothes and started running. I ran up and down the hill five times, alternating between yelling and trying to catch my breath. We did one run where we just walked down the hill holding hands and singing, we are the champions. Eventually we got too tired and to run and join the huge crowd that was forming. Note, pretty sure clothes were found and replaced at this point. There was cheering, yelling, and a lot of chanting of the phrases, Obama, yes, we can, and yes, we did. Everyone was hysterical. The energy was charged with relief, hope, love, excitement, passion, and patriotism. We were all college students, so for many of us, it was the first time we had voted for president, and it was the first time in our lives we could feel truly patriotic for our country. Somewhere in there, I talked to my mother briefly, but it was short. Eventually, I made it back into the banquet room to see McCain's concession speech. I remember thinking that he was gracious and polite in his concession, but even if he hadn't been, it couldn't have dampened my mood. Obama's speech, I only remember in emotions. Note, the writing took place about two months after the event. I was elated, fiercely proud. I felt, and still feel, as of January 2009, absolute faith in him faith and trust, not in a way that suggests he can do no wrong, but in a way that makes me believe to my core that he will always do his best and that he loves this country as much as many of us love him. After the speech, there was laughter and tears, embracing, kissing, everything. We were all so happy. It went on for hours. Around 4 a.m., I finally made it to bed with a smile. So I share that because uh, what we're going to talk about next is a speech that Obama gave in 2007 uh, before he was even 
I think it was before he was even thinking about it, or it was at least yeah. The video in the says two thousand six. Thinking about it. So oh, two thousand six. Yeah, June sixteenth, two thousand six. All right. So I wanted to share my experience uh, with that because I think that over time the emotional impressions fade uh and history is not always great at making it clear what lived experience was like on an everyday basis and while this is a historical event of great significance it also i think is valuable to look at it from the perspective of individuals who were there in the moment and also you'll find throughout this podcast that i believe that empathy is core to understanding the human experience and therefore one of the functions of empathy is to understand the emotions of others so do you guys have any thoughts about that little story or how that story relates to what we watched and we will add a link to the speech in the description but i uh i'd like to hear what you guys think about the story and then i will quote the bit from the speech mm. uh navar do you want to go first sure yeah um yeah i think uh, i mean i love it i think it's uh it's pretty fascinating i know for myself i wasn't really into politics and, and i'd honestly i've never really been um but Voting for Obama was the first vote for me as well. Um, and I remember just that sense of, of hope and joy and, you know, seeing everybody kind of come together, um, at least the people in, in my own circle as well. And so, yeah, I think that that's uh, amazing. And I, I do think that there's a reason that so many people felt that way because we all mm-hmm. got the same sense right um on sort of or i say all but you know uh the people who were happy that he won uh, got the same sense uh on a national level about um what mm-hmm. could possibly uh happen uh because of if you're comfortable election. sharing um, do you so, remember yeah. any emotions you had at the time um <laughs> honestly i remember being i remember being excited and i remember being like amazed that it was a moment where I got to vote for and see the first black president. Um, I also remember having fear uh, that he would not live Mm. through his presidency um, because America is kind of awful. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I still have that fear. Yeah. Like I still have that fear now. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. So I, I mean, but mostly, mostly excitement and mostly, um, just, yeah, I guess hope really that things could be better. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, little did I know what would happen in eight years, but, uh, yeah, definitely (laughs) at the time I felt, I felt great uh, about it. Yeah. Yeah. How about you football coach? Uh, is the captain of the football team to you? Uh, your nerdy teacher mm. who I respect greatly. Uh, I, I, uh, I was too young to vote at that point. I was, I think at the time of that, I would have been a junior in high school and mm. I went, I was in a pretty conservative environment 
at that point. So very few of the people that I was really around on any given day were supporters of Barack Obama. Uh, I remember, though, also very few of the people that I was around on any given day were uh, were black. Most of them, like my, my high school, especially back then, uh, was overwhelmingly white. I think I was one of three black males in my graduating class, which to be fair was like a hundred people, but still Mm. uh, there were, I think I can't remember how many black women were left by the time we graduated. We'd had more, but I think a few of them moved to other schools may have only been like one, uh, one or two, but the, I remember at the time being like, wow, I think it's really great that we have a black president. Uh, But at the same time being like, ah, it's a shame the Democrat won. Uh, But I remember watching, I remember watching the, like, I, again, was not a super politically involved person. Still am not, but I was even less so then, uh, similar to Navarre. And I remember seeing the incredible and oh especially not just that at that time but over the next eight years and since then seeing over and over again how much of an incredible impact his election had on black americans specifically like the Mm. sense of joy and like it, it, it was like it felt like it was uh the culmination it's like the end of the movie like if the movie starts with slavery i think a lot of black people felt like we reached it we got to the ending this is it uh, in that moment mm-hmm. where it's like we've come all this way from all these decades, centuries of suffering, and now we have a man in the White House. You know, there's all this. It's so exciting. Uh, I remember, like, yeah. I think Jesse Jackson was crying on television and all that stuff. Like, it was a huge event. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, it, it. I mean, I was running around naked. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, somewhere you were running around naked. I was just like, oh well, how about that? Uh, uh, but it reminded me kind of of the intensity of the negative reaction that the next president received. That that's that was because that was the first election. Yes. That was the first like really, really pivotal election that I was a- eligible to vote for. And I wasn't in the United States at the time. But I remember seeing on social media my conservative uh, friends and associates being like a huge celebration. And then absolutely it wasn't to the point of like, oh, no. No, this is terrible. It was like hysteria on the side of of left leaning people oh, yeah. at that point. Uh, understandably so, uh, but it was it reminded me of like the it was like we almost got the reverse response eight years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, for me in particular, um, it was a very devastating day, and um, Literally the next day I was walking around on the USC campus and there was already a protest march happening. Um, And the the biggest thing for me is that he had said at one point that he wanted to put Muslims into concentration camps. Maybe not in exactly those words, but he had said something like that. Mm. And the... I doubt that anyone would care that my mom's a non-practicing Muslim, but the fact that that was a threat. And then later he referred to my mom's home country as a shithole country. And his ban meant that the my male Nigerian relatives could not enter the country for my wedding, which really sucked. Yeah. Except for my grandfather who can do, who could do whatever the fuck he wanted because he's just that guy. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm going to read 
a little clip from that speech and then we can discuss that in relation with this. So this is from Obama's speech in 2006 at Northwestern University. He was delivering it as a commencement address. There's a lot of talk in this country about the federal deficit, but I think we should talk more about our empathy deficit, the ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, to see the world through those who are different from us, the child who's hungry, the laid off steel worker, the immigrant woman cleaning your dorm room. We live in a culture that discourages empathy, a culture that too often tells us our principal goal in life is to be rich, thin, young, famous, safe, and entertained. A culture where those in power too often encourage these selfish impulses. So that is our research problem for this entire class slash dissertation. What's a research and problem? Could you define that in this context, that I'm, phrase? Yeah, it's so a lot of the time people will have a research question, which is just a question usually very specific that is guiding your research. So basically your project is to try and answer that specific question. So like um, an example of something I've written in the past, uh, I wrote a chapter of an edited collection um, and the chapter is called Race Play um, and it is about cross-racial cosplay as political speech. And the research question for that was like, in what circumstances does cross-racial cosplay, which is people cosplaying as a race other than their own, uh, allow for political speech to happen? And in what cases does it foreclose political speech? And so then I did a case study where I went through somebody who cosplayed in blackface, um, people who didn't use blackface or anything like that, but were cosplaying brown characters and black characters as white people, and then brown and black people who cosplayed as white characters. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in reading that, it's in a book called Fandom Now in Color. You can find it anywhere books are at. Um, but so in this case, I'm taking a research problem instead of a research question partly because Obama posed it as a problem, partly because it became a problem in my life personally when I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia in 2016. And I was diagnosed literally the same day that Hillary Clinton conceded. She was conceding, she was giving her concession speech in the waiting room while I was waiting for the appointment in which I would be diagnosed. So it was a shitty day. Mm. Um, but yeah, so, and then the structure that will follow is similar to a research question, but it's a like, instead of what's the answer to this question, it's just how can we address this problem, attempt to solve it. Okay. Thank you for explaining. Yes. Yeah. Of course. That's my job. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about the concept of an empathy deficit. Do you guys see that in your own lives? Do you see that in politics? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, it, sorry, yeah, it, I think it definitely, this makes me think of specifically, um, 
the most recent election. I worked in a company, a private corporation um, that had mostly conservative leadership. Uh, and I was talking to a friend of mine and she was saying that she would, would not vote for Biden um, and kind of didn't think that like all the things that Trump did were wrong. And um, because as a person, Outside of this, mm -hmm. I adored her. I was like, listen, I just want to give you perspective. In my, at the time, I don't know, 30-ish years of life, I have never felt so unsafe in this country as I have for the past four years prior living here. Um, and that's just existing. And mm -hmm. so I was like, I know, like, you only want to think about the taxes and the et cetera, et cetera, like the stuff that is so superficial and doesn't change much or often doesn't change in a significant way. But like for me and for people like me, like this is our lives. And I think that that is something that you should absolutely consider when you're talking about who you want to be the next president. And so I think also what's worth noting is that on the political level, when the people in power in the legislative branch fail to show empathy for their own constituents it is appalling egregious it feels heartless in a lot of ways i think and i find that the situation in which republicans and the gop in general not necessarily every single person but find it more attractive to withhold empathy than to participate in it is concerning. Um, and just sometimes the way that some of these conservatives talk on social media, it's as if we're living in two separate countries in the same space. Mm. There's been a lot of articles published recently about how yeah. the country is becoming more divided and partisan than it has ever been, in part due to social mm. media, which is mm. like – it's it's yeah it, it gives you the version of the world that you want to see which allows you to become even more entrenched in your belief system and more isolated from where the other people are coming from and i think has contributed it's not obviously not all social media but that has definitely contributed to how much more uh partisan and divided the country has become politically yeah well and that's the thing is like social media is very much a you curate what you want to see. So if you enjoy seeing hate and getting into drama, you're going to find it very easily. Mm -hmm. um, but you're also always going to find people who agree with you and you will have that. Uh, uh, what is, is it? Confirmation bias? Echo chamber. Yes. Is that the correct term? Yeah. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so, you know, the, you can always find somebody who's going to agree um, and you can always find somebody to fight with if you, if that's something that you want to do. And yeah, it definitely does make it uh, a difficult environment especially when so much of this requires nuance and that is impossible in social media mm. uh, to engage in so yeah mm. and to yeah. Your, and i think I too say, like oh, go ahead sorry sorry i was just gonna say i think as well um what i've seen a lot more recently in my life is the intersectionality of of different things and how empathy plays into that like you know, dealing with autism, for instance, and having to deal with the empathy of that, of people like not understanding you, expecting you to act a certain way. Um, mm -hmm. Many people with ADHD, I think, go through this as well. Uh, we talked We're about We're going to talk illness. about this later in the series. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, people with mental health issues um, or medical issues, like you talked about, like, so yeah, I think when you talk about those things on top of also being a person of color or a member of the LGBTQ community or whatever, like it just stacks up. You need more empathy um, in order to engage positively with people. And uh, what we're seeing a lot of times is not that. Quick definition of confirmation bias, which is the uh, phenomenon in which you believe yourself to be more accurate on what you're discussing than you actually are because you're only taking into account sources that confirm the bias that you already had. Um, And then I was also going to throw in there that in terms of the social media discourse and how much it plays into divisiveness in the country. Um, There's an old school theory about television, but it's a theory that basically supposes that audiences who are seeing a lot of violent media or a lot of media of a particular kind are going to be more like that because of the media. Cultivation theory? But yes, thank you. Uh, Cultivation theory. However, That theory originated in 1956 when there were three television channels uh, and when there was basically zero communication going from the audience to the producers and creators. Since then, that theory has the qualitative research generally debunks that theory while the quantitative research sometimes supports it. And I will say, obviously, the sort of tunnel vision that one can get if they're ruthlessly controlling their social media can, even if you're not ruthlessly controlling it, but can obviously produce some divisiveness. But I think also at the same time, there are a lot of people who exclude certain things from their social media because of how toxic and negative it can be towards them, because some of them are showing a complete lack of empathy. I don't follow anybody who would watch Fox News. Fox News abhors my very existence. Therefore, if you're a fan of Fox News, I'm not a fan of you. And like, it's a matter of my emotional health to not engage with that discourse. It can be traumatizing. It's definitely a microaggression every time it happens. Microaggressions, in case people are unfamiliar with them, are... um, discrimination that comes in a form that seems innocuous, but the more it happens, uh, the more painful it can be. And I've heard people liken them to uh, mosquito bites. A couple of Mm. mosquito bites, annoying, but not a big deal. Millions of mosquito bites, you will be in the hospital. Mm. Yeah. So as as our leading expert on empathy, um, do you like, I feel like I know the answer to this, but like, you're, you're not suggesting that empathy means we must engage and be friends with every person. It just means that we're no. looking at it from a place of putting ourselves in other people's shoes when having a discussion. That's an excellent segue into the Bernie Sanders op-ed that I had you guys read. Hey, halflings, this is TLDR, or too long, didn't register, just in case some of those concepts are a little sticky in your head, or the lectures got a little bit verbose. Whenever you hear this noise, that's a TLDR. TLDR. 
Hey guys, that was a lot of stuff, and we're about to move on to another subject, so just a quick recap. We talked about our experiences with the 2008 election, and most importantly, the emotional aspects of those experiences. We want to focus here on how empathy from politicians affects us as people in our daily life, both with ordinary everyday stuff and big events like presidential elections. One thing we can take away is that our political decisions can't be separated from our feelings about them. Okay, on to the next thing. That's an excellent segue into the Bernie Sanders op-ed that I had you guys read, which for the audience, um, the day after the 2016 election, Bernie Sanders wrote an op-ed in the New York Times that participated pretty heavily in the rhetoric that was going around at that time about empathy for the white working class. And I'm interested to hear what you guys thought after reading the article, and then I will talk about my critical analysis. It appeared as though he was attempting to say, hey, look, uh, it's not good. We, I don't like the fact that he was elected. I disagree with the Americans who elected him. Uh, but the fact is that this is a clear indication that our country has problems, problems that need to be addressed. And I personally hope that President-elect Trump is uh, – capable and willing to address these problems and actually help fix things. And if he does actually fix things and fix the problems that our country has, then I support him. Otherwise, nah. That was essentially what I got from it. Retweet that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, essentially, you know, it's, you know, very much a uh, political stance on, on saying you know, the right thing, but, uh, or saying, saying what he meant, but also saying in a way that didn't come off as like aggressive or, uh, mm-hmm. hateful or anything like that. Um, which I mean, you know, I don't know the guy, uh, but I, I'm sure a lot of that was probably sincere. I think a lot of us were like, well, shit, you're the president now, I guess. Yeah. I hope you do some of the things that could be possibly positive and maybe just don't do all that awful stuff that you also plan to do. And he only did some of it, I guess <laughs> only did some of the <laughs> yeah. awful stuff, presumably because the other stuff was too expensive or illegal to be able to pull off or because yeah. he's incompetent. He couldn't get Mexico um, to pay for it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, there was, I, I did want to highlight the, the little bit because there was like a paragraph, I think about the basically in that seemed to address the response that I mostly saw, which was people saying not just, oh, no, he's a terrible person that has been elected to our nation because he's let's be real. He's not the first terrible person who got elected president of the United States. Uh, not even close. Mm-hmm. Uh, arguably not even the most terrible person who was elected to president of the United States. But <laughs> there were a lot of people were genuinely afraid, like you like you mentioned earlier, Navar, of for their safety. Or Joan, even like where you were saying, I genuinely feel afraid because now racists and all sorts of other ists have been emboldened. Uh, I, I don't know if you have seen the the film Black Klansman, but I recently rewatched that last year. Uh, it's one of Spike Lee's best late period movies. Uh, and he that movie draws a very explicit connection between the Ku Klux Klan's rhetoric of the 1970s and Donald Trump's rhetoric out of circa 2016 uh, and even shows footage of the uh, David Duke, who was the leader of the KKK back in the seventies talking about how Trump is essentially the culmination of everything that they had hoped for. Uh, and 
but it's interesting mm-hmm. that w- seeing how that was such a huge part of the response that I witnessed, it's only a paragraph in what Bernie Sanders is talking about. Now, granted, it's a re- relatively short piece, and it's likely he's also pretty insulated from a lot of that stuff due to his position uh, as a white man. I'm guessing he's pr- probably mm-hmm. a, a white, probably presumably economically well-off man. Well, but yeah, it was. Keep in mind, he was also running for president in this election. Yes. Yes, uh, he yeah. he kind of it seemed like um, actually he was trying to be the second Obama in some ways where Hillary when Obama ran against Hillary Clinton, he was like the less, quote unquote, on paper qualified candidate. People hadn't heard of him as much, mm-hmm. but he did an incredible job of like uniting people and stirring up people's hope. Literally his campaign uh, slogan, hope and yes, we can uh, and ended up beating her and it all and. Uh, obviously, uh, through uh, let's say what I what I understand to be some pretty underhanded means, uh, he did. Bernie Sanders was not able to uh, win, or rather, was not able to get the Democratic nomination uh, this time. Which Correct. is to say, there's apparently evidence of Hillary Clinton and the Democratic National Committee basically rigging the primaries, uh, allegedly uh, mm. against Bernie. But anyway. I'm not a huge bird supporter. I just remember seeing that at the time. Uh, I've looked into it. I have not seen any legitimate evidence of them rigging it. However, I do believe that a lot of Sanders supporters were independents or not knowledgeable about politics prior to being Sanders supporters and don't understand party conventions and um democratic uh like processes as well as they would need to to interpret that data Mm. so like for example i saw a lot of rhetoric when during the um conference the the national conference when it was uh people were the delegates were basically coming in remotely from their home state, saying something fun about their home state, and then saying who their state had nominated. And a lot of young Sanders supporters on social media were complaining that these people were voting for Hillary or assuming that these people could change their votes. And I think it was lost on them that this was not a vote. This is a communication of what the vote that already happened was um so things like that lead me to believe that some stuff was interpreted as more nefarious than it actually was and when it in reality it's the same as it has been for every election ever and um not ever but for a long time and uh it was seen as as nasty when it was just protocol Mm. um but i'm particularly want to focus on the rhetoric about empathy for the white working class as folks of color do you have any immediate reaction to the phrase do you remember how you felt when you maybe heard that for the first time i guess reading this article was the first time i think that i heard it and i feel like i feel like it's mostly for me it just came across as like mostly just political language 
I mean, I think like there's definitely, like I said, I talked about like literally having a friend who supported Trump. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there's, I can certainly have empathy for the white working class and, and, but yeah, I, I think it, having empathy is probably, probably the extent of it, depending on, on how they look at everything else. Right. Because it's, it's not just about like, like, yeah, the same taxes you pay are the same taxes I pay. Like all this stuff is fine, but you're not looking at the whole picture. You're looking at your picture. And so I can understand your picture. Cause that's part of my picture too. But I think the the big picture is all the other stuff, the intersectionality that we talked about. Like that's, you can't ig- ignore that if you, if you want to talk about the whole process. Um, so, yeah, I think it's for me, I guess applying empathy here from, from me is fine. Uh, I just, yeah, I think <laughs> there still has to be a discussion after that, I guess. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, for, for me, um, it reminded me, uh, I'm, I've definitely heard the phrase before. I've heard the phrase numerous times okay. because I remember basically mm-hmm. watching the election or like the lead up to the 2016 election. Uh, and in the aftermath, people talking about how did Donald Trump manage to win? Because he broke basically every rule for a, a, mm-hmm. a, a Repu- uh, not even Republican, just a, a presidential candidate and still managed to eke out a yeah. victory. And what I'm reminded of, uh, have you two seen the Black Jeopardy sketch that SNL did a few years ago uh, with Tom Hanks in it? Which one? It's the one with Tom Hanks. Yeah. Yeah. I believe we talked about that on an episode. Yeah, we might have where he's answering every single question correctly. Mm -hmm. And like the the point until Mm -hmm. it gets to the last category, people who matter or lives who matter. And they're like, well, it's been a good run. Uh, But Mm -hmm. there's it's really interesting (laughs) because he would be a representative of the white working class. And the point that uh, the argument that that sketch is making is that a lot of his cultural background and plight and experiences uh parallel those of black people uh a lot of black people certainly in america obviously not one-to-one but that there are like the argument would be that the ruling class so to speak in america or rather the the uh the billionaire elite i'm not sure what the preferred nomenclature is these days but basically the rich people who be exploiting the poor people Mm. uh we ain't black people are not the only poor people we're not even most of the poor people just uh statistically maybe a higher percentage of us are poor but we're not most of the poor people so most of the people being exploited by these individuals actually aren't even people of color they are they're facing similar exploitation and the argument would be that it makes more sense for these groups of people to unify uh and pursue their shared interests rather than uh well what has actually happened which is that the white working class has basically blamed or been told to blame uh minorities and other poor people uh, including black people uh for their problems and so their ire rather than being aimed at the people who are actually causing their problems is aimed at people who are similar victims to them uh and mm-hmm. so that is what it reminded me of because it was like oh yes because look donald trump didn't just win because america is racist sure that was part of it but there had to be actual people who liked what he said aside and he not everything he mm-hmm. said was just oh i hate mexicans oh i hate this group oh i hate that group he was he represented something 
to a lot of people. Uh, and so I think that what Bernie Sanders is trying to get at is there are the fact that people wanted to vote for this guy is is tied to more than just uh their the various prejudices and biases they have and there is an actual mm-hmm. problem with the with the way our nation is being run that all of these things are tied to but we need to address for example he talks about banking and different things like that uh and like how that's that's a whole exploitative system uh and there's a lot going mm-hmm. on immoral there i and so in that sense uh i completely it made complete sense because that was an under what he said was the same understanding that i have gained in the years since that election mm. So, yeah. for extra reading on this topic, I highly recommend Hillary Clinton's book, What Happened, in where she literally just talks about what happened over the election. Um, it helps to have both perspectives, I think. I'm fully, uh, full disclosure, I voted for Hillary. Um, I had a lot of reasons for it. Um, I won't go into it because it's not the topic of this. There was a lot of Wednesday morning quarterbacking about what went wrong in the 2020 election and why no one predicted it. Bernie Sanders and several others talked about the idea of empathy for the white working class as something that liberals weren't paying attention to. Many people of color, including myself, felt that it was a bad way of framing the argument. We thought it was unfair to single out white people as more deserving of empathy than other working class people who did vote for Clinton. We also felt it was a way of avoiding a conversation about racism and sexism. Ultimately, it suggests that we're not all on the same page about what empathy does and what role it plays in politics. All right, so what I'd like to do here is put a pin in these thoughts, and then I'm going to talk about some definitions and get into the real crunchy, nitty-gritty aspects of empathy. So, for I'm going to quote from the Oxford English Dictionary blog circa 2014. For the OED supplement volumes of 1933 and 1972, which added the term and then expanded its coverage, empathy was a technical term of aesthetics and psychology, defined as the power of projecting one's personality into, and so fully comprehending, the object of contemplation. From the mid-20th century, it has shifted decisively in meaning to the ability to understand and appreciate another person's feelings, experience, etc. It has also broken free from specialist use and psychology to become a word in familiar everyday use. So I'm going to go on to read a little bit from the introduction to my dissertation in which I analyze this. So here's the first important distinction. Contrary to popular misusage, empathy is not a feeling in and of itself. Rather, it is a power or ability to comprehend, understand, and appreciate the feelings of another person or object of contemplation. Notably, the later the latter definition leaves room for the possibility of empathy with non-persons or non-humans, a theme that will flow throughout the project. Uh, Daniel Goleman, the author of Emotional Intelligence, and now Emotional Intelligence 2.0, notes that empathy as a component of emotional intelligence is best tested by sampling a person's actual ability at the relevant task. For example, by having them read a person's feelings from a video of their facial expressions. What this example makes clear is that reading a person's feelings and by implication communicating what has been read is the primary activity of empathy. It is a way of gathering knowledge, and most importantly, it does not include the judgment function implied by words like sympathy, pity, and compassion, each of which suggest the reader's opinion of the emotions of the other. Merriam-Webster's definition of empathy includes a discussion of those differences. 
Sympathy and empathy are closely related words bound by shared origins and the similar circumstances in which each is applicable, yet they are not synonymous. For one thing, sympathy is considerably older than empathy, having existed in our language for several hundred years before its cousin was introduced, and its greater age is reflected in a wider breadth of meaning. Sympathy may refer to feelings of loyalty or unity or harmony in action or effect. Meanings not shared by empathy. Uh, in this case, the distinction comes down to specificity. While sympathy can refer both to an ability to intuit or harmonize with another person's feelings, it also refers to the experience of feeling similarity, affinity, or unification, as indicated by the root word sim, S-Y-M, which refers to sameness. Notably, while empathy has the associated terms empath and empathic, there is no definition of sympath or sympathic available in the sources that I checked, which were several dictionaries, including the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, unfortunately, Merriam-Webster doesn't distinguish any difference between empathic and empathetic, but I argue that the difference is implied by the aforementioned differences between sympathy and empathy. Empathy puts the emphasis on the action being taken rather than the feelings that are felt. It is no wonder that there is no dictionary entry for sympath as there isn't a strong communicative need for a word that could only mean a person who feels feelings similar to the feelings of others. Conversely, an empath is one who experiences the, the emotions of others, both literally and figuratively, and that comes from the de definition of empath in Merriam-Webster. The latter is more immediate and more visceral, more visceral, requires greater vulnerability, and has the potential to be more painful. Empathy does not rely on a perceived similarity between the subject and object. Rather, it represents an ability to actively reach across difference and forge deep and meaningful social bonds. It follows then that common parlance does not have much use for distinguishing between sympathetic and sympathic. We might consider the words to be a distinction without a difference, while our current usage of the word empathetic represents a difference without a distinction. We use the one word to describe both people who are skilled at empathy and people who deserve empathy. Disentangling the two yields the following definition, which I wrote. Empathic, adjective. One, characterized by or functioning through empathy. Example, the Stanislavski method of acting depends on an empathic imagination. Two, a quality describing the ability to empathize. E.g. Social workers tend to be very empathic people. Synonyms, intuitive, insightful. Antonyms, apathetic, cold, clinical, indifferent. Versus, empathetic, adjective, deserving of or provoking empathy, soliciting an emotional reaction. Example, many dog owners describe puppy dog eyes as a very empathetic expression. Synonyms, cute, adorable, antonyms, abject, disgusting, obnoxious, repulsive. Contrast with pathetic. So let me stop there for a second and see how you guys are hearing that. Um, does it resonate with you? Does it make sense? Do you have any questions? Uh, no, no questions. I think, yeah, it definitely uh, makes sense. I think that it's, it's always good to have more distinction with words uh, because words have meaning. 
Um, and for me, that's always been like a big focus in my life. So yeah, I, I think it's, it helps to understand it more clearly. Mm. Um, I think the separation, uh, the clear separation between empathetic and empathic is, uh, helpful because yeah, they do get conflated a lot. It's, it's yeah. The, um, Mm -hmm. almost, Oh, I've rarely seen anybody use the word empathic except for me. Yeah. Uh, but I agree. That's, it yeah. makes like uh, qualities of an empath uh, or qualities of showing empathy makes really sense. Like that, that makes a lot of sense uh, versus like empathetic, somebody who basically provokes empathy uh, from others that, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah. I, I did not know that yeah. the word empathy had apparently uh, originated as a psychological term. Is that was that did I understand you correctly, or that an academic yes. uh, psychological term? That's really yes. interesting. Um, yes, it was a term of aesthetics and psychology, so probably mostly only used in academic papers or in clinical psychology notes. Mm. I did want to ask in in regards to like the, you mentioned uh, how one's ability to empathize being connected, uh, or at least. Uh, Perhaps uh, a signifier of one's ability to empathize maybe being indicated by how one could tell somebody's emotions by looking at their face, mm-hmm. uh, which is really interesting because that what, is a function of empathy. Right. What about people who struggle with that? Because uh, I know that like a lot of people with autism spectrum disorders have difficulty uh, de- determining emotions yes. and feelings just from a facial expression. So. I don't go super in depth with this on my research, partly because I don't think I have enough familiarity with autism to really handle the topic well. But I will say that once you start to dig into the theories of empathy, and especially if you read that book by Daniel Goleman called Emotional Intelligence or the second edition, Emotional Intelligence 2.0, you'll learn that there's multiple empathy functions. And while autistic people are not great at reading emotions on other people's faces, or at least that's the popular knowledge, um, I'm sure there are some autistic people that are just fine at it. Um, But there are other functions of empathy they're actually better at than a lot of other folks, like, like understanding and processing their own emotions to a degree like it partly that comes out of being a coping mechanism is because when you're so um when you have difficulty communicating your emotions it becomes even more important for you to be able to understand them on your own um and yeah so like i said i didn't go too in depth on that so i don't have notes handy to uh like really answer the question but i believe that there's research out there that shows that while they might lack some ability in one area of empathy they more than make up for it in other areas i'll just say from my own experience um that as a teenager specifically my first job was at starbucks and i used to observe people's behavior to see how they acted and and how like their um body language spoke when they did certain things and try to process how that worked out um and so yeah i think between there's a number of like how you 
your interest in learning uh, facial expressions and body language, I think, plays into it. Um, and then, of course, yes, coping is a huge factor in that as well. But also, I think now we've, it seems now that we've reached a point where the spectrum of autism is much broader and there's more understanding about that spectrum. So there are people who have gone their entire lives uh, well into their 30s, 40s, 50s who never knew that they were autistic that now have some answers towards that end. And I think uh, that specifically is going to help sort of cover that range. But yes, certainly like, you know, obviously for any diagnosis, there has to be a basis. And I think that, you know, that is part of it, but to the degree just depends on the person. Yeah. And I should point out, um, I'm also disabled, but not, I do not have autism or, and I'm not on the spectrum, but, um, there's a difference between being officially disabled and knowing personally that you are disabled because a lot of people are uncomfortable going to, uh, medical providers who are not always empathetic or empathic. See, I messed it up. Um, <laughs> empathic or kind. Um, and it can be very rough. Like there have been times in the past where like an MCAT prep test um, had an answer on it that indicated that the medical provider should dismiss a patient because they were being just being emotional or something like that. Um, and that was really galling to me because it's like fibromyalgia is one of those diseases where not a lot of research has been finished on it yet. Um, it's been around for a long time. It's just because it mostly affects people. It mostly affects women of color and especially black women. And I think that's because it's caused by chronic stress, at least partially. But, um, yeah, so like i i just wanted to bring that up because i don't want any listeners to feel like um we would be negating anything and i know that was not your intention at all so yeah just no and i do want to point out like there's another very important factor in that certain places in the world have laws that negatively affect people uh who are neurodivergent mm -hmm. and so getting an official diagnosis is sometimes not the best case scenario because you could actually do more harm to yourself than good mm -hmm. which is super unfortunate um but yeah i think i think i've found in a lot of people that there's a lot of uh there's a lot more value seen in self-diagnosis when it comes to things like that than than there used to be given mm -hmm. uh, credence for um so yeah i think it's yeah you definitely have to just be careful and decide how you're going to do that based on where you live and in your situation. Mm -hmm. Defining empathy. We got into some real nitty gritty here with what empathy actually means. So just to review, pity, compassion, empathy, and sympathy are all different things. Pity and compassion typically include both the observation of what someone is feeling and a judgment on that observation. If you pity someone, you judge that their emotional state is bad and not something you want to experience. If you feel compassion towards someone, you see that their emotional state is bad and you want to help it be good. In both cases, the focus is on you, the observer. Sympathy is to feel like someone, while empathy is to feel with someone. Unlike pity or compassion, the act of sympathizing doesn't pass a value judgment, but it still puts the emphasis on the observer. 
It's a moment of saying, ah, I know what that feels like, and I recognize that it is bad, without actually feeling bad in the moment. Conversely, empathy is to see that observer and feel the same as them in real time. You bring up that negative feeling in yourself so that you can share it with the person who is suffering, thereby lessening it. This is the important part. No shame in rewinding and running through again. We're going to bring this back to the political public sphere conversation. And I'm going to pick up at part of my introduction again. In the intervening 14 years between Senator Obama's speech and the time of this writing, summer 2020, but also 2021 and 2022, um, <laughs> there have been countless examples of instances where our political economy demands apathy. So in, in case anybody's unfamiliar with that word, it's the opposite of empathy, just not caring. Um, Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Whether it be the quote-unquote patent troll Martin Shkreli buying up expired pharmaceutical patents and increasing the costs of, for example, life-saving AIDS drugs as much as 5,000%, National Rifle Association President Oliver North's description of Parkland school shooting survivors as quote unquote, terrorists worse than, quote, the terrible days of Jim Crow, or Donald Trump displaying a complete, quote, absence of empathy, quote, while flashing smiles and thumbs up as he ostensibly comforted survivors of yet another mass shooting in El Paso, Texas. And I have citations for these and can provide them in the description. Because of their ongoing love affair with corporate America, the GOP has been particularly vulnerable to this malady of morality. In order to prioritize profit making, one must show a certain amount of apathy toward their employees, customers, and victims. In broad terms, capitalism, because of its inherent requirement for endless growth, can only pursue two paths, innovation or cost reduction. Innovation is expensive and difficult. Cost reduction is easy so long as you don't mind the cognitive dissonance involved in various unethical methods such as outsourcing labor, bribing politicians, and neglecting safety and quality assurance policies. In her 2018 book, Blowout, Rachel Maddow recounts how decades of lax regulations on the oil and gas industry have led to a geopolitical nightmare in the form of Russia's attacks on Ukraine and its Western allies through espionage, digital terrorism, propaganda, and outright warfare. For what it's worth, I wrote this paragraph before the war happened. Mm. Uh, Russia's ongoing issues with corruption, despite a brief attempt to correct in the 90s, 
lead to an industry shaped by nepotism, inefficiency, and greed. When a lack of investment and innovation resulted in a failure to compete on the global market, Russia turned to companies like ExxonMobil and people like Rex Tillerson of Enron fame as collaborators and co-conspirators. The now infamous entities, including Putin, represent a faction against which are set the majority of the Western Hemisphere. The scope and stakes of this conflict all stem from a lust for money on the part of Putin and a seeming desire to shower his friends and allies with the stolen goods. Undoubtedly, the accumulation of power enters the equation. Ultimately, when faced with a need for growth, growing the economy, growing his own personal wealth, growing the prestige of his nation, Putin chose corruption over innovation. It is usually, or at least seems to be, the path of least resistance. While this example illustrates the scope of harm that can arise from abuse of capitalistic impulses, I have not the capacity to address the numerous harms visited upon humans, animals, and the environment thanks to decisions that pro prioritized profit in favor of safety. Um, again, Blowout, fantastic book. I highly recommend it. Whether or not you like Rachel Maddow as a commentator, the book is extremely high quality and does an excellent job at explaining how the oil industry set up the circumstances for not only where we are as a country, where Russia is as a country, but also for the Trump presidency. In the United States, we see similar behavior from members of the NRA and weapon manufacturers and distributors. After a mass shooting at a school, unfortunately now a common occurrence, the NRA president has been known to say things about the victims that are too abhorrent to reproduce. Suffice it to say, public outrage over mass shootings and calls for regulation hurt the profits of companies like Smith & Wesson. The cognitive dissonance that would arise from empathizing with mass murder victims is incompatible with the need to protect profits and capital. Because endless growth is the goal, no amount of profit will ever be enough. And therefore, any threat to growth is a threat to the future of both the organization and the individual. Thus, to protect oneself while maintaining a relatively stable mental state, apathy is the only answer. It is much more difficult to sell a gun when you are thinking about how it may be used to kill a kindergartner in cold blood. The fear the child feels in their last moments and the pain the family and community will be forced to endure in the aftermath. So let's take a break there for a minute and process a little bit. Um, any reactions? So essentially you're saying that... Um capitalism as a system uh kind of devalues empathy uh and that one actually reminds me i was thinking about it some it somehow came to my mind earlier uh but the song the gun song from assassins where uh or, or rather uh there it's what does a man it's uh yeah it's the gun song with the, it takes a lot of men to make a gun and basically the beginning of the gun or the beginning of the song is the guy describing um leon shogosh the character uh describing all the people who were involved in the manufacture of something of a gun and specifically the risks that a this was, of course, like turn of the 20th century, but the risks that were involved in the manufacture in terms of like uh, mining the iron, uh, forging the steel and uh, working on the machines, poten the potential uh, injury to them. And the idea that I think the last part of the song is he basically says a gun kills many men before it's done, before you even have long before you shoot the gun. 
a lot of people are dying, uh, which Oof. is a direct commentary on essentially America's manufacturing processes and the way that it exploits workers. And it's true. Like you mm-hmm. are incentivized to cut costs any way you can. And as we've seen time and time and time and time and time again, one of the easiest ways to do that is to cut is to cut worker safety regulations or rather or to ignore mm-hmm. worker safety safety regulations ignore i mean obviously you have even upton sinclair with his uh with his book the jungle talking about the meatpacking industry and what was actually being put into people's uh food and we i think joan you and i were talking about factory farming the other day and how that shows mm-hmm. a complete lack of empathy for the actual animals that are being farmed um it's yeah, I completely agree that that it, at least in yeah. terms of like if what you're if you're not if your number one goal is profit, then a lot of other things are going to have to fall by the wayside in order for you to maximize that. And unfortunately, that requires mm-hmm. a a either that you relinquish empathy or that you just ignore uh, the empathy that you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I will say I'm not just saying that capitalism discourages empathy i'm saying it requires apathy Mm. to function Mm. yes i can see where you're coming from there yeah i i was thinking about this this morning um as i was taking my kids to school i don't know how it came to my mind but essentially thinking about the idea uh, at my old job a common commentary was somebody would have an issue with the way that things were being run or how many hours they were being worked or how much money they were making and it was like a lot of platitudes about, you know, things that could change. And then it was like, and I mean, what are they going to do? Like we pay more than anybody else. So, you know, that closing statement is always like, that's the your, kind of your real feelings right there. And I think that that is specifically telling, even in a place that like, did pay more than any, anybody else in the industry, uh, in the state that I lived in. Um, but the things that it required of its employees wasn't healthy or beneficial or in any way, uh, 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 empathetic. And so I think like, yeah, we, we talk about this, like, I think the idea that you have to have apathy in order to continue to grow profits, uh, certainly does add up. Yeah. I will put in a caveat that if you take the route of innovation and you do it ethically, it's theoretically possible to do capitalism with empathy. But if you have a board or you're a public entity, it is unlikely that you are going to be able to stop the demand for growth. And yeah, well, and like, you, you know, Growth is always, at least like where I worked, it was always the indicator of of how well you did. Like if you didn't grow year over year, then clearly there was an issue. Uh, and yeah, it's it all gets veiled in, in a lot of different things. But, mm-hmm. you know, you look at other places of employment, like the government is set up to not like your employees, government employees don't think about the profit year over year it's like you just go do your job yeah and you know so and i can't like not speak for everywhere but like i just think that there's obviously places that are different mm-hmm. um i don't know there's just like that famous billionaire that's always posting about how he pays people Warren Buffett. tons of money and talking about no it's a young guy that has like a jesus haircut oh. uh white jesus haircut i should specify um and a goatee he's like in 
orient. I don't know. He's very much like, like anti other billionaires because he, I am the only good billionaire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know enough about him to like speak on it. It just seems odd to I me. I kind but, of yeah, feel anyway. like nobody has any business having the same budget as a government. If you have that much money, first of all, there is no way for one person to make that much money on their own. Mm-hmm. At mm-hmm. least dozens of people helped you do that. And the yeah. idea that that wealth would be hoarded instead of shared with the community is maybe an unpopular opinion in the United States because we're obsessed with work and the American dream and individualism. But uh, to me, it feels wrong. Capitalism and apathy. So apathy is the opposite of empathy, just not caring and not having any emotional relationship to the subject at hand. So I argue that capitalism is inherently apathetic. Here's why. Capitalism demands infinite growth. If you stay still, you'll be devoured by some other company or business, so you must keep growing. Infinite growth is probably impossible, but because of the system we're in, we have to strive for it anyway. The only way to grow is to increase profit. To increase profit, you have to raise prices or decrease cost. No one likes to raise prices, so cost-cutting it is. The best way to cut costs is to innovate, which is expensive, or to reduce the price of production. It's very difficult to reduce the cost of material supplies. It is very easy to reduce the cost of labor by simply paying workers less. The more you care about your workers, the harder it is to exploit them. Similarly, if you sell things that can hurt people, it is very difficult to also feel empathy or compassion to those people. A gun salesperson cannot spend too much time thinking about the possibility of that gun hurting a person without suffering emotional health conflicts. It is much easier to be apathetic. I don't think you guys have read Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. No, I've I've meant to read it for 20 years now, and I just have not picked it up yet. <laughs> it's an excellent book. I've read the, the um, original is, Parable of the Sower, but I have not read uh, Octavia Butler's book. It plays in the story. Um, you, you wouldn't happen to remember it, would you? The original parable of the sower? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's a person going out to sow seeds. Uh, As they're sowing them, some of the seed falls by the wayside where it gets trampled and doesn't grow. Some of the seed uh, falls and just sits there and gets eaten by birds. Some of the seed falls on ground that seems good, but is actually kind of shallow. So even though it springs up initially, it can't grow its roots down because there's like hard stone beneath it. And so that seed dies and then some of the seed falls on good ground and is able to grow and produce fruit uh and the typical interpretation of that that you would get in like a church is that you want to be the good ground for the word of god to grow and produce fruit in your life yeah it's originally jesus came up with that jesus is the one who originally said the parable of the sower so in parable of the sower uh the protagonist's father is a Baptist minister and theologian. Um, And they are living in a post-apocalyptic society where uh, there are endless wildfires, um, severe climate change. Keep in mind, this is written in the early 90s, maybe even earlier, Mm -hmm. maybe like 70s or 80s. I'm going to look that up because it's important. But um, so 
the are living in a world where if you do not live inside of a gated community or like a um, private mansion with a wall, you are fucked and living on the street. And we're talking the worst pictures you've ever seen of people living on top of each other in, I don't know a good word for it that isn't like judgmental, but yeah. And just like people that don't have clothing, people that don't have anywhere to use the restroom, people that are um, high on drugs. There's a particular drug in the story that makes people enjoy setting fires. Um, there's also a great deal of resentment between the extremely impoverished class and the sort of remnants of the middle class that live in these walled communities. Um, Lauren Oye Olamina is the daughter of someone who lives in one of these communities. Um, he commutes by bicycle to work, which is an extremely dangerous activity. And there is no gasoline available for the most part anymore. And if there is, people are using it to set stuff on fire. Um, so when I read this book in, I want to say 2017, um, there's also a figure in the book who runs for president and his slogan is make America great again. Oh no. Um, not even fucking kidding. Like I saw that in 2017 and I, stood up i put the book down and i was like what um and for what it's i mean not for what it's worth that's a bad way of saying that um she did pass away from a heart attack um at like 50 something in the early aughts um so thank god for her she didn't have to stick around to see this but um a lot of Black women who like Afrofuturism talk about her as a prophet because she was so close. Um, in my opinion, Parable of the Sower is the blacker, more intersectional Handmaid's Tale. Hmm. Um, hmm. And let me just really quick pull out the date on that. It was 1993. So... Um, although I have been informed by my elders that Make, a Great, Make America Great Again um, was a riff on, I believe, Reagan's slogan, mm. um, which I think was just like Make America Great or something like that. Yeah. Um, all right. Mm. So we are going to talk a little bit more about Afrofuturism in the next chapter. And since we're almost at time for this class... I am going to zip through the last few bits about empathy for the white working class, and then I will discuss what the topics of our next episodes are going to be. Um, all right. So continuing from where I was before about apathy and capitalism, though the examples here skew conservative, Shkreli, Trump, uh, the third person I mentioned, oh, the NRA, um, for good reason, right-wingers are not the only ones with a fundamental misunderstanding of empathy and the ways in which it might guide our moral and political behavior. Within days of the 2016 election, including literally the next day, 
Despite a popular vote victory for Clinton and by, I believe, 8 million votes and dubious involvement by Russian foreign agents, most of the Monday morning quarterback talk centered around the concept of empathy for the white working class. Bernie Sanders notably seemed to write at least partially, in my opinion, from his own unresolved anger and frustration due to his loss in the primary, the results of which he initially refused to recognize. Um, and I can provide citations for those as well. In the op-ed for the New York Times, he said, millions of Americans registered a protest vote on Tuesday, expressing their fierce opposition to an economic and political system that puts wealthy and corporate interests over their own. I strongly supported Hillary Clinton, campaigned hard on her behalf, and believed she was the right choice on election day. But Donald J. Trump won the White House because his campaign rhetoric successfully tapped into a very real and justified anger, an anger that many traditional Democrats feel. I am saddened but not surprised by the outcome. It is no shock to me that millions of people who voted for Mr. Trump did so because they are sick and tired of the economic, political, and media status quo. In his critique, and that's from the article that I had these two read. In his critique of the Democratic Party's loss excerpted above, he did not mention his resistance to post-primary reunification or the impact it may have had on his voters. Rather, he focused on the rhetoric of justified anger from the working class. The concept of the white working class, which Sanders only alludes to instead of saying outright, is inherently flawed in its very conception, almost to the point of being oxymoronic. While calling for a vague, unspecified empathy, they also carefully exclude all but the most privileged members of the working class. This becomes indisputable when one scrutinizes the election results by demographic. 91% of Black voters and 66% of Hispanic voters chose Clinton. The Democratic candidate also carried a majority of voters between 18 and 49, who undoubtedly make up the majority of the American workforce. Most notably, Black women, often the target of the sort of justified anger Sanders alludes to, voted 98% in favor of Clinton. And these are from Pew 2018. Finally, it is worth noting that post hoc analyses attribute the electoral loss to protest voters and those who stayed home despite voting Democrat in the past. Again, citations available. In one article announcing Clinton's numerical clinch of the nomination, a Sanders supporter expressed his disdain. Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad could appear before a burning bush and hand me a stone tablet with lightning and everything that said vote for Hillary, and I would choose hell because it's the same thing said Brian Seligman, a delegate from California and former U.S. Marine and computer engineer. I'm not voting for her. Sanders' post-election op-ed neglects a discussion of any of the ways his own tactics and strategies might have strengthened the GOP's crusade against Clinton, nor did any of the talk center around election interference from Russia, despite widespread knowledge of their action and Trump's now infamous Russia if you're listening line. Further, this hasn't made it into the introduction yet, but we now know that the FBI, who were um, continuously putting out new information about Hillary Clinton's emails, also knew about the stuff that was going on with Russia and said nothing about it. Uh, the Instead, 
Sanders and other writers' first impulse is to find fault with the candidate and the campaign. The attempt to privilege the working class neglects the majority of that very group, allows him and his followers to deflect responsibility for the subsequent state of affairs, and by disguising the conversation and rhetorics of economics, it forecloses any discussion of the ways racism and sexism dictated the results of the 2016 elections. The writers make note of anxiety, fear, frustration, and anger seemingly as part of their call for empathy, while failing to recognize what they are truly asking. For marginalized peoples to feel the fear of white Americans who see them as threatening. More specifically, those who call for empathy with the white working class are asking black people to feel that whites are inherently superior, for women to feel that men are inherently superior, for LGBTQIA plus people to feel shame and fear about their own identity, for Muslims to feel that their religion is a terrorist organization, and for immigrants to feel that they have no right to a safe and stable home. The white working class is a convenient rhetorical umbrella that shields Trump voters from quote unquote accusations of racism, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, Islamophobia, and more. To call for empathy toward these folks is to ask the victims of these isms to hate themselves. And now I wanna make a distinction here again about types of empathy. There is the type of empathy that allows you to comprehend and understand the emotions of others. And that is not what I'm discouraging in this case. I think it is important, even with people whom you have the most adversarial relationship, to try to understand their emotional perspective, if only for your own benefit. Um, But in general, it's good for society at large. But um, if you end up doing therapy at any point in your life, especially cognitive behavioral therapy, which I did, you will find that uh, granting empathy to people will give you more peace of mind, even if they are your perceived enemies. Like I used to challenge myself to empathize with the most adversarial people I could think of, including Donald Trump. And I got there. It helped that I read Mary Trump's book about him. Um, So I want to be clear that in this case, I'm referring to empathy as feeling with. And the idea that a Black person should be feeling white supremacy in concert with a white person is psychological violence. And I'm not saying that Sanders intends psychological violence. I'm sure in general, I believe we as a species do not have a high um, a high level of understanding of empathy for the capacity that we actually have. Um, like we have a lot of unexplored capacity for empathy. And I think in general, most people are not taught to hone that as a skill. Um, so I'm gonna go back into a little bit more of this, wrap that up, get your guys' response, and then we'll talk about what's in the next episodes. This is not to suggest that Sanders and others intend to propose such imaginative psychological violence. Rather, it illustrates how poorly Sanders and many pundits and politicians actually understand the concept of empathy. 
Sadly, this is no surprise. With decades of reductions in funding to arts education in favor of STEM programs, as well as the persistent demand for infinite growth posed by an inherently apathetic capitalist system, we failed to educate our society on how to use its most indispensable social networking tool, empathy. Now in 2022, our nation has passed through some of the most divisive times in our history, and we are at the crux of a new understanding of the ways that empathy may inform our political ideals. The global pandemic of COVID-19 with the accompanying losses in every facet of daily life, as well as the global outcry over the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, to name only a few, have led to deep suffering that is eased through sharing and feeling together. Following the age-old logic that whatever doesn't destroy us gives us XP, it's possible that this moment represents an emergence of the conditions that enable a new wave of kinship and coalition building. The most recent sign of this may be the historically diverse crowds of protesters over the aforementioned murders of Black people by police officers. The connections between racial justice and emotional intelligence are self-evident. Black scholar activists from W.E.B. Du Bois to Martin Luther King Jr. to Toni Morrison have discussed how vital it is for movements to solicit empathy from potential allies, while there have been just as many accompanying critiques. That said, political division and social conflict are only one facet of the problem. And in this point of my introduction, I go into some details about empathy and public health. I'm just going to rattle off some statistics really, really quickly. In 2017, Suicide was 10th among all Americans, regardless of sex, gender, race, origin, or age, as the leading cause of death. Among, American, among Americans between age 10 and 34, it was the largest preventable cause of death, uh, number one being accidents. The same report notes a 4.9% increase in suicide deaths from 2016. Conversely, for Americans 45 to 64, the leading cause of death is cancer, and for those over 65, heart disease. It requires no training to notice the differences in the way our culture treats heart disease and cancer versus the way we handle suicide. Further, stress has been recognized as a major factor in a variety of serious physical and mental illnesses, including heart disease and fibromyalgia. So those are just a buttload of reasons why empathy is important. Um, we went over the definitions of empathy, including my very own homebrewed definitions. Um, there is more that I can go into and I will make it available to people, but we are pretty much over time at this point. Um, so nonetheless, I do, if you guys have time, want to get any thoughts you had about that big chunk of information that I just threw at you. Um, so since it looks like Navarre's having a little bit of tech issue, let's go for our beloved football captain. I talked about Parable of the Sower, which is an amazing Afrofuturist book by Octavia Butler, which should be required reading. Go check it out. It was written in the early 90s, but does a great job at predicting some of the very real political issues we deal with today. Chances are your local library has a copy or two. Finally, I squeezed in a couple quick facts about the ways that stress and apathy lead to serious physical and mental health issues in our entire population. All this is to say that it is so important that we think about empathy and how it functions in our society. So we hope you'll keep on listening. Uh, yeah, I think um, I question whether uh, Bernie Sanders meant empathy in the understanding sense or in the identifying with sense 
uh, because I agree that it's important to understand in the understanding sense. Uh, and uh, that was how I had interpreted it. And I also agree that mm-hmm. if he's attempting to say, uh, identify with these individuals and all of their perspectives, I agree that that would be pretty messed up. Uh, and it is it, like you do not need to feel the same things that they feel. Uh, so I do agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I yeah, I think that it is important to understand of uh, that well, yeah, like it's important to understand why people do the things that they do, uh like you said, and one of those in obviously understanding movements that are harmful or potentially dangerous is also useful at the very least, as you said to so that you understand it for your own benefit uh and I think in the case of why Donald Trump won uh yeah i think it's very intru- i think it's very important to understand why the people who voted for Donald Trump chose to do so uh i do i i, I was never really a very in depth into the whole bernie bro thing like i was never really a bernie sanders supporter and i only saw glimpses of the controversies surrounding the bernie bros that was, uh, that were originated at the time and then have kind of they've they seem to have mostly died out by this point but they continued for a while after oh, yeah. uh but mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting to see that it's interesting to see the response of at least that individual uh and how i i do remember the birdie bros coming off as being pretty anti-hillary at the time as well extremely uh yeah i will just say i personally experienced um some verbal harassment just for being a Hillary Clinton supporter. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So I think it was, yeah, I th- I think I agree with the overall statement that, which is that it is important to understand each other. Uh, it is not always important to hold the same opinions as each other uh, or to even try and feel the same feelings or thoughts as each other, because that can be deleterious to you as a person, depending on what those thoughts are and mm-hmm. feelings. Uh, yeah. And I think I agree with you that humans have an incredible capacity for empathy, but often choose not to exercise it because I think possibly because our instincts pull us in a different direction in a lot of cases, but it's mm-hmm. something that I, that we as a society have struggled as various <clears throat> societies have struggled with, I think throughout human history for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Navar, did you have any thoughts on the discussion of the Bernie Sanders Um, Also, I wanted to add just really quickly, um, just for transparency's sake, uh, you know, a dissertation is an evolving document. As I said, I've been working on this for over three years now, so it's probably going to get another revision before it's done. And I might shift how I speak about this because I don't think I spent as much time thinking about him possibly coming from the perspective of um, simply understanding them as much as I probably should have. And that was probably because I felt so emotional about it at the time. And I felt extremely taken aback by the idea that I should be empathizing with a person that wanted to put my mom in a concentration camp. Mm. It's important to understand folks <laughs> empathize yeah. with Joan yeah, as you are listening right. to this dissertation, because it is an academic document, but it's being created by a person. <laughs> so yeah, you have to understand. I mean, I would appreciate yes. it greatly. Yeah. 
that I mean, th- this is hopefully going to be very short. What I'm about to say, but essentially, the the course, the drama school course that I took, is a lot of it is actually kind of about empathy, even that even though that wasn't the term that they used. The focus was understanding the context in which these works were originally written and understanding who the people mm. who wrote them were, and that will help you to understand what they were originally trying to say with the work in question, which will give you an understanding of how the work could be performed. You don't have to be perform it that way, but it gives you a better understanding of what the work is trying to do so you can therefore do better mm-hmm. things and this is like usually a play but any given script and it's the same yeah. thing with i think academic documents it's very useful to understand where you're thank you for the context joan because it helps us to empathize with your position and understand how to imp- uh, how to interpret your perspective and what you're saying mm-hmm. and it's also i want to be clear important to me that if any um students who are actually enrolled in a not made up school uh, come across this and can find some benefit from me talking about my struggles to finish my dissertation, which has been really challenging. um, Then I want to make sure that people are able to hear that. Um, I think we often don't talk enough about our failures and struggles um, in a way that would reassure people who are going through the same thing. Um, so yeah, sorry, Navar. Did you have anything you want to add about? I did. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to say one, like, I think I'm glad that you gave the distinction of the two different types of empathy. Um, and I'm glad that you gave your perspective because I think when I answered the question earlier about empathy towards the white working class, I was talking about two different things. I was talking about, the ability to put myself like to understand some of those uh, things that they're talking about, but, but yeah, not, but, but to not put myself in the shoes of like, well, this is how white supremacy should work. Um, Because I think it's like the idea that there is a white working class in and of of itself is like, that's very telling about the way that America Mm -hmm. is structured. And, and um, when, you can have a group that is ultimately the working class, right? And separate it still because one race has more privilege than the other. I I mean, we're talking about obvious problems. So, yeah. So the idea that I would want to have any sort of empathy about uh, their struggles in, in um, oppressing the rest of the world. I, yeah, that, that is where the line yeah. is drawn for sure. Um, but I, yeah, I do think that it's important to have those distinctions and, and to understand it. Cause I think it's something that I intrinsically knew, but maybe didn't have the full ability to, to separate the two, the two ways that it was done. So, I might, yeah. depending on how this goes, have to do a bonus episode about fear when we're done, because I feel like fear is the root of a lot of these issues. Um, And Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things about fear is that it absolutely hijacks your limbic system and makes it incredibly difficult for you to do anything but react to your fear. And that is an evolutionary strategy. Mm -hmm. That's something that we all have and that in order to overcome it, like I think this is one of the things that makes us unique as humans is that we can overcome our instincts. Um, But there's some evidence of that in other animals too. Uh, for what it's worth, I my like side favorite 
theory section is interspecies communication. So I'm super fascinated by animal empathy um, as a form of communication. But um, I think at this point, as much as I would love to keep going on and on about this, it's probably a good idea to wrap up this episode. Um, just going to give a quick rundown of what you'll expect to see in the following episodes. So in episode two, we're going to talk a little bit more about the concept of an empathic public sphere. We'll get a little bit into um, animals. We'll talk about shame, um, feeling as speech, and uh, we will do a short discussion about my pedagogy in doing this. Oh, also, I just remembered that I wanted to say I'm actually very glad, Navar, that you had a differing opinion and that like Jeremy's was like a little bit in between the two of ours because first of all, I intentionally had you guys react to it before I gave my opinion on it because I didn't want your, I didn't want you guys to be primed, which is the academic word for it, by hearing my opinion and thinking that either even on a subconscious level that your own opinion was wrong. Um, so that's, um, that's also a pedagogical thing. Like I want you guys to form your opinion before I mm. p bring in the analytical side of it that I've done partly because I'm not perfect. I, like I said, I was very emotional about this topic and I wrote out of that. And because of that, I'm con didn't consider it as completely as I should have. Um, and for that, I'm really thankful for that you guys had to like complex opinions that I got to hear before you heard mine. So now I can go back and reflect on that and look at how I might want to change it. Um, so. Uh, Thanks, Professor Miller. I got to get the football you're practice. Welcome, class. Uh, yeah, the bell's I, I been ringing that. for like Thank 20 so minutes. Much. I don't know why they left it on, but Gosh. I got to get the football practice. I'm just going to cast a charm on that real quick. Uh, so I'm really, since we are over time by a lot, I'm just going to read the titles of the next uh, episodes three through 10. Empathy and genre in Afrofuturism. Episode four, Lieutenant Uhura's Dirty Computer. Episode five, Empathy and Leadership in YA Animation. Number six, Rebecca Sugar, Master of Feels. Number seven, Empathy and Play in TTRPGs. Number eight, The Unique Charisma of Ada Eggfort. Number nine, Review, Once More with Feels. And number 10, Postmortem or Necromancy for Empaths. So that's all for today, class. Have fun at your various nerd clubs and sports ball practices, and we will see you next time. Bye, nerds.
Hey, halflings! Welcome to Dr. Jones Office Hours. This is just a short segment where I'm going to respond to some comments from either you guys or, in this case, because this is part of my actual dissertation, I'm going to respond to some comments from my committee. So uh, I'm going to read a little bit of those comments right now, and then I'm going to address them. So, the Bernie Sanders question. Uh, my advisor notes that he's just back from a town in West Virginia where he ran a workshop with um, some residents who are in danger of seeing their town become a ghost town. They had been coal miners, but the mines were closed due to economic and political choices. They felt that they didn't have any agency in this, um, and the state government closed the college, which had been their other major source of income. Um, a lot of them were Republicans, but not necessarily Trump supporters, um, and they were bonding with their, they didn't have a lot of uh, Black or BIPOC neighbors, but they did bond with them. Um, and he says, I have rarely seen a community with greater empathy and mutual support perhaps because of the desperation of the situation. There was no doubt some racism there, but I doubt any of these folks want to put anyone into camps. That's a reference to uh, part of the context of the conversation from earlier. If you're uh, a little lost, just go back and listen to the beginning of episode one. Um, they are the very embodiment of the white working class Bernie is talking about. Uh, he felt empathy for them, at least while he was there, in both senses of the word. Uh, Appalachia is a region that has been ignored by the federal government under both parties' rule. This was a state which was solidly democratic, but has gradually shifted to be more Republican. Uh, but he believes they could be won back with a more empathetic, I would say empathic, engagement from progressives. Uh, so I think I'm going to stop right there and take that for a moment. And I think that, like, there's one of the things that I'm trying to illustrate is not necessarily that the empathy is the binary state where you either feel everything that those people feel or nothing that they feel. And I, there's a definitely um, some wiggle room in there. And I think... Um, one of the things I was trying to illustrate with the rhetoric that Sanders is using is that it's rhetorically easy to say and in reality becomes incredibly difficult to practice because it requires this ambiguous understanding of what degree of empathy should actually be desirable. So it's the sort of, which emotions are you privileging in this moment? And whose emotions are you privileging in this moment? Not necessarily the idea that uh, all, not even all Trump supporters necessarily um, agree with everything that Trump says, but the sort of impulse to say, uh, let's empathize more with these people who have been our political opponents, it suggests that, you know, that there's a debt of emotional concern that is the responsibility 
of the people who are already advocating for change. And I think it, it creates a care relationship that is um, unfairly balanced to the people that are already at a disadvantage. If anything, rather than calling for empathy for the white working class, I would rather see us call for empathy for the caregivers, empathy for the people who are most uh, marginalized. It's not that we can't have empathy for everyone, it's just that carving out these specific groups is problematic in and of itself. History teaches us that solidarity has been historically possible for some black and brown leaders to imagine. I can question whether Bernie is the best messenger here, but I would not call all of his supporters Bernie bros since there were many different reasons to support him and not all of those supporting him did so out of misogyny. I agree. That's a legit um, note. I hope that I made it clear that that uh, I'm not actually trying to say that every single Bernie supporter was a Bernie bro. I just think that there were a significant number of Bernie bros who were engaging with Clinton supporters in a way that belied many of the ostensible values of Bernie Sanders and not that Bernie Sanders is individually responsible for every single one of his uh, supporters, but there, I didn't see a concerted effort to uh, push back on that as much as I would have liked, uh, especially having personally encountered it. And, you know, that's something that we criticize Trump for very heavily. Obviously, Trump's supporters did much more violent and dangerous things, and I'm not comparing Trump supporters to Sanders supporters, but I am saying we do expect politicians to take a certain level of responsibility for what they encourage or discourage their supporters to do. So um, <clears throat> it just seemed like there was a conflict between the sorts of values that Sanders would promote, like empathy, um, and the sorts of behaviors that he was content to at least condone, if not encourage. Um, but I do want to make it clear that I don't hate Bernie Sanders. Um, that was um, suggested at one point in some of what my committee was responding, and I don't have that kind of emotional connection to Bernie Sanders, I'll be honest. I think I was bothered by the way he played the political game. And I think that some of the things that he said were more intellectually, psychologically violent than most people realized. And I want to highlight that. Um, I want to make it clear that some of the things that he did were in conflict with some of the things that he said. And that's a fair uh, criticism to leverage to any politician, but I felt like the um, a lot of my peer group were not leveraging that same 
lens of analysis onto Sanders as they were to other political candidates. So, um, all right. So, and then he goes on to say, uh, I seem to be open to rethinking or modifying this section. Yep, absolutely. That's why I'm recording this little bumper. Um, it does make clear the different understanding of the concept of empathy in generative ways. That's the idea. But the anger comes through in the delivery here and in the original wording. I will say, um, you know, and I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but I am a black woman. So I think anger is easy to perceive when I'm being critical. Um, I don't think I have the energy to sustain anger from something that happened six plus years ago. Um, but I recognize that when I wrote it, there was certainly a level of anger and resentment because I very much felt that I was in that category of Black women who Bernie Sanders didn't seem to understand the conflict between calling Black women to empathize with the white working class when uh, it led to the conditions that we had in 2016. So um, there was anger there, but it wasn't directed specifically at Sanders as much as it is at the general sort of sense of um, the frustration of not taking credit for his part in the failure of democratic process in uh in the 2016 elections i suppose um i don't know if this is valuable to anybody but i'm recording it just in case um exploring more fully which kinds of emotions are easier to make work in the academy and which ones we push back on but also why this expression of emotion feels different from critical studies writing which might come from the same place and make the argument in a more dispassionate way so i think part of my project here is to confront the idea that emotions don't have a place in the academy. I think most emotions are forbidden in the academy. I think there's a long tradition of dispassionate and supposedly objective analysis of the matter at hand, whatever it might be. And I think part of my project is to assert that literally everything we experience is filtered through our own unique perspective and context on the world. Um, we'll talk later about things like superverbal semiotics, but the concept there is that the more context you have for any given unit of knowledge or information, the more meaningful it is to the point where two people experience the same exact concept, idea, moment, word, sounds, video, whatever, and they have radically different understandings of what that meaning is and could be because of the context in which it occurs. So um, that an example might be if a 
five-year-old and a 50-year-old both watch a shooting star and the five-year-old is seeing it for the first time and the 50-year-old is seeing it for the millionth time and also thinking of every single moment instance of stars shooting shooting stars night skies um being with the child being outside thinking about the symbol of what a shooting star means to literature to things they've read to paintings they've seen to random inside joke that they heard once to a wish they made one time on a beach when they saw a shooting star unexpectedly and were pining after their latest crush there's so much more meaning embedded in a single moment that is essentially the same that there is no ability to empirically measure what those two people experienced in that moment there is no objective truth of that moment there is only the perceived meaning and i think that the reason this is important is because we that experience is inherently composed of all of the emotions that were felt in all of those contextual moments that preceded the instance in question. So the feeling that they had when they made that wish comes back when they see that shooting star again. And the next time they see a shooting star, they will remember all of the previous plus this moment with the five-year-old child. So the idea is that all knowledge is unique to the individual because it is all processed through a essentially a platform which is unique to the individual which is changes constantly and which cannot be reliably replicated which means nothing can be reliably replicated which means the only real true knowledge is self-knowledge um Maybe this is getting way too metaphysical, but that's what you get for coming to office hours. All right. Um, just to wrap this up, I wanted to uh, say that anything said in here is basically theoretical, academic sort of dialogue. Um, nothing that my advisor says is something that I would take offense at or that um, brings me any sort of negative affect. Um, I strongly value his input and I love my advisor like a family member. And um, yeah, and I hope that if you're listening to this, you got something out of it. Feel free to hit me up on Twitter at the rogue senna um all the other social media platforms too in case twitter has exploded by the time you're hearing this uh yeah and stay tuned for further episodes of halfling university so long shire folk that was a headgum podcast <laughs>